uh, I collected 30 students. We armed ourselves with Molotov cocktails. Hijack plus uh, asked him to go to Tallinn. Uh, and then uh, we were on the barricades by the radio station. This is Cold War Conversations. Thanks to Patreon John O'Connor for our intro today. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. In 1985, an 18-year-old Estonian named Riho Teres arrived at the Soviet Armed Forces Large Conscript Assessment Facility in Tallinn, obeying his conscription orders. Little did he know that 26 years later he would be a NATO general. Riho shares his experiences in the Soviet Navy with us in some detail. We hear about his service on the Soviet frigate Zadorny, including trips to the Mediterranean and Cuba, as well as monitoring NATO warships. Riho also shares his experiences of Estonian independence and the challenges of converting the country into an independent nation. I'm extremely grateful to Elizabeth Braw, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, who facilitated this interview via her Engelbert Ideas essay. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. It is an absolute passion for me to save these stories from being forgotten and sharing them weekly for free for everybody to hear. And whilst this is a passion, I'm asking if each listener could make either a one-off or better still sign up to a small monthly donation to help me find the time to produce and finance the project. If you'd like to know more, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate if a financial contribution is not your cup of tea then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us as well as sharing us on social media it really helps us get new guests on the show so back to the episode i'm delighted to welcome rio terrace to our cold war conversation I was born in Estonia, uh, in, uh, in northeast of Estonia, in a little, little town called uh, Jochvi, and, uh, and that was uh, 1967. And what, what did your parents do for employment? Uh, my father was a, a worker in the diary uh, factory, and my mother uh, did uh, budgeting and, and uh, finances whole life. Were your parents uh, nationalists in in terms of were, were they in favour of an independent Estonia? Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I was born in the in the region where there were only eight percent Estonians, so uh, it was a pretty challenging life uh, from as long as I remember because of the street fights with uh, with Russian speaking boys, and I, I never had a single friend. Uh, who was Russian, uh, and and uh, my parents were from the family of uh, of farmers, and, um, and some of their family members were uh, were deported to Siberia. Some of them were executed in 1941. So 
uh, it was not publicly discussed that much, uh, that, uh, but, but uh, the mentality was pretty uh, anti-Soviet, yes. What sort of accommodation did you live in? Were you in flats? Yeah, in, the, in this uh, block flats, like, like everywhere that these times. Uh, well, perhaps there's an interesting fact that I joined underground uh, resistance movement, uh, Blue, Black and White, uh, in the age of 13. That was 1980 during the Olympic Games in Moscow and Tallinn. We had an organization uh, in Tallinn, Bernu and, and uh, in my region as well, where children were, we were copying the Declaration of Independence uh, of 1918 and posting it in the mailboxes of people and stealing red flags. That was the, the kind of operation we did. So very from a very early age, you were trying to resist the, the Soviets then? Yes. What were your neighbours like? You, you said they were mainly Russian, were they? All in my in my uh, house, which had uh, 150 flats, I think there were two families of Estonians. Wow, wow! And ha- how would you describe your childhood? Happy as always. If you look back, the childhood is always happy. But uh, what I remember is that you never you were never able to be sure going out that uh, you will not be beaten up by the Russians just because you are Estonian. So there was always this fear. Yeah, and kind of a will to resist to it. And, uh, but, but there were always more, so the, that, is, that was the problem. So we tried always to move in groups that uh, you would not stay alone somewhere in this uh, area where I was uh, living the whole, whole first 18 years, actually. Did you have any relatives in, in the West at all or not? No, I didn't. But we had some, I had some friends who had some relatives living in UK or, or in the States. But me, me I didn't have any. Uh, they were all executed or died in Siberia at that time. Did your mother and father tell you to not tell people outside the family circle about the independence movement or anything like that? Well, I, I didn't tell my, my family. My father experienced it only after the regaining independence. I showed uh, him some papers, some letters, etc. Uh, I didn't tell them. Uh, and and they, they didn't discuss the topic at home. But uh, but on the other hand, my, my father always had... Uh, uh, in his uh, cardboard, blue, black, and white books and things, and I was reading them uh, secretly. So uh, it was kind of not the topic, actually. But we, uh, but he was listening all the time, Radio Free, uh, Radio Free Europe and West of America. So uh, I, uh, in their age of kind of 13, 14, I, he started to allow me to listen to it as well. So this uh, Estonian programs, which were broadcasted uh, in, Radio Free Europe and in, in Voice of America. Was the language banned at that time, or were you allowed to speak the language? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Uh, well, I went to Estonian school. I had all my uh, all my schoolmates and, and friends were Estonians, uh, and and um, we didn't uh, we didn't really uh, 
have any problems with that and, and the, the language in the streets and everywhere was uh, both uh, bilingual, uh, so no problem to speak Estonian. Of course, I learned very, very early stage Russian because of the, the, the environment I, I was living, but uh, no. Uh, and in the rest of Estonia, Russian language was almost not used. Uh, so my, my wife, for example, and she's 50, uh, she doesn't speak Russian. What, what did you do during your spare time when you weren't at school? Uh, sports, art, what, what young people do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And stupid, stupid things also I'm sure I'm <laughs> sure well, not, not, nothing very special did you uh, have to serve in the Young Pioneers yeah, yeah and the Young Communist League and, and, uh, and all the class I mean uh, I was even not asked uh, whether I want or not they brought me a paper and, uh, and uh, then I was a member and were, were you fed a lot of propaganda at school? Was that part of the education? Yeah, of course. I mean, there, there, there's all, all, all the time you had uh, all the communist uh, rubbish uh, coming from all... But nobody really believed it. I mean, at least Estonians. I mean, I don't know what the Russians thought or didn't. But, uh, but Estonians never, never really believed uh, in, in that. That was kind of a evil thing you had to accept, but... Uh, but uh, but nobody really, really believed full-heartedly on, on that system. What was your reaction to receiving the the letter that you were being called up for military service? <laughs> well, uh, I, at that time, the system was that you had to, if you went to the university, then you didn't, didn't have to go to the service, or you had to go uh, later, or uh, well, kind of. But uh, I missed the exams, so I didn't uh, succeed with the exams. Uh, and so uh, I was working uh, on the agriculture uh, at that time. Uh, then I re received a letter, and that was okay. I mean, everybody went there. There was no discussion, actually, not to go. I know that in, in uh, Tallinn and uh, some... Uh, very well-educated schools or very popular schools or very so public type of schools. There, be, there, there were boys who, who tried to uh, fake or had uh, parents giving them kind of medical doctor's uh, papers not to go or they had a plan to go somewhere better, uh, some, some better organized uh, military structures. Uh, close to the to home, but I didn't have any kind of a network, so I just received my papers and and uh, was planned to be uh, to go to the Marines uh, at least in the first papers. Because I guess the fear at that time is that you'd be serving in Afghanistan. Well. Uh, yeah, because uh, the, the fear was not obvious until the moment I received the letter, because the system was that uh, Russian conscription drafted uh, with the order of the Minister of uh, Defense, which came out end of sept uh, end of September, uh, twice uh, twice uh, twice a year, end of September and end of March. Uh, and uh, from the period of, say, 
like 25th of September to the 31st of December, we were drafted in, in this three months period. Uh, and, and then of course, uh, the first drafts, the first ones to go, were to go abroad or more important uh, positions. DDR, Hungary, Marines, Navy, and of course, Afghanistan, which was the same as you go to DDR, as they called it, Boyan Internationalist or uh, Soldier Internationalist, or you went to Afghanistan. That was the same draft, or Navy, or Marines. <laughs> so uh, I was drafted in as a Marine, but of course the fear was that something can go wrong somewhere in this system and you would land in Afghanistan. That moment there was a fear. I was not afraid of being drafted for three years because that seemed to me impossible choice. <laughs> three years is a, a long time at, at that age as well. <laughs> it is. What, what was your first day like? We were gathered in the little bus uh, at night in... Uh, in Kotler, where the place where I was, and then I was brought to Tallinn, where you had the turnover point of all conscripts from all Estonia. And in this place, they called it fee market, where then the representatives of the military units all over Soviet Union came to, to take their conscripts to their bases, to their respective planned uh, units uh, and, and there always something could go wrong so we were we were gathered together we had a big fight with between Estonians and Russians there as well <laughs> during the day uh, and that night then the, they came and I was picked up by, by black uniforms which means uh, Navy or Marines and I really hope that now it is Marines because Marines were two years uh, very elite unit, so because of my doing sports that time, uh, I, I was really hoped that I go to the like, special unit. But then I was brought uh, together with some other Estonians, like 10 of us. Uh, we were brought to Kaliningrad region on the train, in civilian clothes, not in uniforms. I don't remember, but I think the place was called Pionersk. Uh, I, I don't know the, the German name or the, the other name of it. Uh, and there was another collection point where everybody then was uh, brought to the units. And there, I think something went wrong and, and I didn't go to the Marines. But then they said, we were sleeping in the middle of the night in the cold weather. I don't remember what, early October, but really rain and cold weather in the middle of the square. So we didn't have any, any dormitory. Uh, we were sleeping, we're standing there, everybody fell asleep together. And then uh, we were picked up and said that uh, you are going to Navy. Two years and 12 months as they announced. <laughs> uh, not three years, but two years and 12 months. That was the first time I experienced that I will go to the Navy. 
And then I was brought to Momorovo, a little city on the border of uh, of uh, Soviet Union and Poland, uh, a formal uh, Prussian barracks, uh, where I spent six months. Uh, it was uh, a school of the uh, sea mine specialist. What was that that training like? I mean, I've I've heard that the junior conscripts were treated pretty badly and there was problems with, well, bullying is probably not a strong enough word, but certainly they were not treated very well. What was your experience like? (laughs) I expected that question. For me, it was very different, but it was kind of very often the case with Estonians. Uh, then there, it was asked who can paint or who can draw drawings or who is an artist. And since I, I mentioned that I went to the art school uh, during my school years, I, of course, volunteered to be an artist. And then that happened that uh, the next six months I didn't participate in any of the lessons but was an artist of the company, which means uh, official time I painted Lenin's and all these uh, pictures of the different communists and uh, painted black uh, kind of uh, propaganda items. And the the rest of the time I was uh, uh, preparing uh, special albums for the people who were leaving uh, with nice pictures and photos and uh, so kind of uh, artworks uh, for the older serving surgeons of the of the unit conscripts of three years serving. So I had a very nice life. I didn't have to do anything. Was well fed, uh, got uh, parcels from home, uh, and uh, and was not doing any single thing for for the navy that time. But I think that that changed, didn't it, Ria? Yeah, well, uh, and the point was uh, normally Estonians in different uh, ends of the Soviet Union, they were drivers, musicians, artists, uh, clerks. uh... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Because if you could could read and write and and even understood certain things, you were already in advantage. Uh, uh, But I, I felt that these six months of my preparation or six months uh, was nice but I couldn't imagine to stay there in this hole uh, 
for for three years. So I volunteered to go, not to stay there. They offered to be artist of the of the regiment, uh, but I volunteered to go to the ship to the navy, and then uh, I was sent to a place called Arakuba. Uh, it's near Severomorsk, uh, close to the Norwegian city Kirkness, uh, up over the Polar Kreis, place where Kursk in the future, submarine Kursk was at home. The, the closest village of officers' wives was 30-40 kilometers away, and there were only six ships and three submarines in the base. That was the place where I landed then, in, uh, in uh, spring 1986. Uh, so the first uh, months were very a lot of light, the sun didn't go down uh, at all, so it was very sunny, lots of uh, work on the ship, uh, because everything people did, uh, there was no crews, no like uh, people, uh, civilians who were keeping their shape, uh, ship in order. You had to paint it, uh, take the rust away, work all the time, cleaning everything. Uh, but we were happy that that our ship then took off uh, uh, to a, to a long voyage. Uh, Every, say, tenth of the ships went to this kind of a long uh, trips abroad, and I was happy to be on the ship. Uh, Kriva class frigate, Project 1135, uh, with 100 people on board. We went to, they called long voyage or Talnia Plavnia, together with, uh, with the aircraft carrier Kiev. To the Mediterranean. So we were then seven months on the high seas in 1986 from summer to, to autumn. And did you get any shore leave in the Mediterranean or not? Yes, of course. Uh, everybody told us that that is a possibility. And yes, we did in Tartus, Syria, for four hours during these seven months. So that was your your only shore leave in seven months? Yes, my only leave in seven months. Wow, four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in city of Tartus, where there was absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and each of us got seven, seven Syrian, I think, pounds. And so I bought a modern talking uh, picture for my for my brother for that money. <laughs> so there was absolutely nothing uh, to do or nothing to see. That's probably why they let you off, I suppose. <laughs> and then there was always five people plus their the polytruck or somebody caring that you are not uh, escaping. So it, it was always uh, kind of under control. No, the seven months I was on the ship, uh, our, our task was uh, in the group to follow the aircraft carriers 
we did follow the aircraft carriers regularly. It was just uh, uh, after after the bombing of uh, Libya, as as the American aircraft carriers were were bombing Libya '86. Right. So your role was to monitor. Yeah, we wanted to count the planes, how many planes uh, go and how many come back and what timing. Because that time, I think the Libya bombings, as, at least that was told to us, that somebody uh, was uh, sleeping and didn't see that two planes left but didn't come back. And these two planes were then attacking Libya. So we, we, we had to follow, our ship was following aircraft carriers. Uh, the carrier groups in the in the carrier group in the Mediterranean, and every time they went to the harbor, we were standing waiting on them, be it in in Italy or somewhere else. Uh, so we were on the ship seven months. From what I understand, is that there weren't many friendly harbors you could go into, so you had to carry out all the maintenance. Of the ship at sea. Everything we did the same, and we got the we got the supplies by uh, different uh, Russian supply ships, uh, fueling in the, in the move. Uh, all this uh, there was two harbors actually to go. Tartus was the one, uh, but it was too small at that time, so our ship was only on the uh, on the anchor. anchor. And and then uh, then Bengas, uh, which we didn't go first time. No. Next time I went there, then, then we went to Wipping. So I, during my three years and three months, I was happy to have to make two trips. So our ship was very excellent in that terms, that uh, normally uh, nobody was going twice uh, in the row, but we, we had a uh, possibility to go uh, 86 and 88 uh, to the trip. And so, did you get ashore in '88 in Benghazi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, uh, then we had Benghazi. I think we visited the Russian uh, uh, base there—not a military base, but they had kind of a civilian compound where where we met first time civilian people in my time in the navy. Uh, some even some girls. Uh, so just to talk to them one evening. And then we visited factory of bicycles, I remember, and the university. So three uh, couple of hour trips uh, in Benghazi. But in the second time, and that's a very special story, uh, then we went to, uh, we took a trip over the ocean and, and were visiting Cuba, 1988. That was my my more fun part of it because I was already three years on the ship and last months to go and and you know everything and then we were in the, in Sinfuegos and Havana two weeks uh, that was nice time <laughs> I would say <laughs> did, did you get any more money to spend there or not no 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 money. But we were paid well because we were paid in in the Soviet Union. There was kind of a, for for uh, for civil merchant merchant ships and for the navy and some others. There was kind of a currency rubles, 
which were on the exchange rate on the black market 1 to 25 rubles. Uh, so you could buy with them, they called bones, and you could buy with them in the special shops where there were like uh, Sony magnetophones and things like that. So th therefore we were pretty good pay, we couldn't use it, so uh, I came uh, home being immensely rich. <laughs> uh, because of this uh, bones, uh, was a good, good, good part of it. Now I have uh, actually positive memories of of the of the second part of of my service. Because I guess Cuba was thought as a safe socialist country for you. Yeah, so. well, there, there was. Uh, I remember why there, there was uh, the reason why we went there is that Gorbachev was to be. Was to be visiting uh, Havana, Castro, Fidel that time. Uh, but then uh, in Armenia there was an earthquake, so we had to go to Leninakan earthquake. Uh, but we still were already on, on on our way, so our task was to secure the air defense uh, layer of his plane going to Havana. Uh, so we were able. Than to, to do the official visit, even though he didn't come. But we had loads of Gorbachev perestroika books uh, to deliver them, to give them to Africans, and that was uh, lots of fun. Personal contacts, contacts with uh, with uh, Cubans were very, very short with the Cuban Navy, uh, but not with civilians. But, uh, but we were allowed to go uh, to beach and had even one beer each, and and so it was rather, rather positive. And we saw first time pineapples and uh, there was lots of bananas and pineapples and of course cigarettes, which was important at that time. Uh, every sailor got a package of uh, 20 blocks of cigarettes. So one packet, uh, like a big parcel of uh, 20 blocks each, uh, 10 packs in it. A lot of cigarettes. Cuban, very strong cigarettes. We were very happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the um, best thing to have. Yeah, yeah. What What was the name of your ship, Riha? Uh, Zadorne. Smiling ship or something. Zadorne was, was the name. A very well-equipped frigate. We had um, uh, four... Uh, anti-submarine rockets uh, which were uh, launching, uh, uh, carrying uh, submarine torpedoes. So there was a rocket which brought a torpedo to the place and then some of them were said to be nuclear. We don't know that, about that, but at least there was a sign on it that we were not allowed to go close to it. Uh, and then we had uh, anti-submarine rocket launchers uh, of 12 tubes, which was my responsibility. Then we had uh, eight torpedoes. Um, then we had air, air defense uh, rocket system uh, and air defense gun systems and mines. So, and lots of uh, submarine uh, acoustic, what is the word for underwater radar? Uh, Sonar. Sonars, yes, right. Okay. So uh, it was a very, very well equipped ship. In the Mediterranean, how close were you to the NATO warships? 
uh, as close as this uh, as it can be. Uh, <laughs> the the American helicopter pilots were throwing Marlboro cigarettes at us, uh, 88, uh, and we were friends, you know. Uh, but they, we were very close, like uh, two cables, which is cables, which is 300 meters. Wow, that is close. So, sorry, you very were saying the, the American helicopter pilots were dropping, what, presents to you? Yeah, something? yeah, cigarettes. Cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was fun. I mean, we were, uh, yeah, I, I, the aircraft carriers. I, I remember it was Kennedy, uh, it was Nimitz, and it was Kitty Hawk, these three aircraft carriers, uh, which were, were following uh, day and night. And, and I, I think there's a really interesting story in your later life. You're invited aboard, I think, Nimitz, was it? Uh, I was invited in, uh, on the George W. Bush, which was the same type as the Nimitz, uh, exactly the same uh, aircraft carrier. So the, the young lieutenant on board who was responsible to, to introduce the ship to the army general was very surprised that I actually knew almost everything about the ship. Uh, where is what and how it works and all this because of my service in the Navy. <laughs> yeah. and at that time nothing has changed I mean there was much more uh, clean and new but the same system so everything was in the same place and, uh, not that much uh, differences yeah. yeah well the other, other interesting story is that uh, my uh, colleague uh, as the chief of defense of Norway he was a submarine in 85 to 88 and he was a submarine commander in, uh, in Norwegian, northern Norwegian waters, uh, Bergen, out of Bergen. So actually I was following the Norwegian submarines with my ship and he was on that submarine. So he invited me to look at the world from his angle. So we were, we went to, with, with, the, with the Norwegian submarine uh, underwater in Barents Sea and <laughs> he kind of, uh, Nice memory from that as well. That must have been interesting. You prefer being above the sea rather than under the sea. Absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. Even though the rough were, rough seas were pretty difficult, if you uh, if you know the storms in the Faroe, you know, Ireland, Iceland, uh, Scotland, up in the north areas are very very rough, and all the NATO ships or commercial ships would go uh, higher in the harbors but the Soviet Navy did not have any place to hide so you had to spend like uh, six days seven days nine days the longest on the on the heavy storm uh, with, which really was something very special that time we were afraid we will never come back but, uh, but today looking back it was a nice time interesting challenge <laughs> yeah if you say so if you say so did you participate in any exercises on on the frigate like live firing exercises yes yes we were uh, we had uh, different i mean many exercises a lot of exercises during the trips and in between i mean there uh, first we, we had our torpedo exercises 
where we were launching orange torpedo mock-ups, which we had to fish out of the Barren Sea in December. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, because we, nobody wanted to uh, give them to NATO, so you had to go on the rowing boat to the, to the torpedo if you found it, and then bring it back to the, to the ship. And I remember once, uh, that is probably where I was closest to sunk with my boat. We were uh, eight people on the boat. It was not stormy, but it had some wet waves. Uh, and the 18-meter torpedo in hand with a, with a rope, uh, jumping out of water because it was like a buoy. And then uh, Norwegian reconnaissance ship, White Moriarty, they call it, came between our ship and the boat to force us to release the torpedo. <laughs> and so we were not able to go back on, the, on, the, on our ship. And it lasted like, uh, for me, I feel like t days and weeks, but I think four hours or something. Wow. So four hours in a in a rowing boat. Yeah, and, and very very cold weather, water. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. was was uncomfortable, but we managed to get to the to the ship back. Uh, and, and I saw a submarine uh, launch uh, strategic uh, missiles from out the water. Uh, our ship was securing the area, so you saw the submarine. Uh, from underwater, the missile uh, launched uh, coming out of the water and then heading to the uh, horizon. Uh, that was very nice. In the, in the Barents Sea, a Nordic night. <laughs> very beautiful. Yeah, that must have been really impressive. Yeah. And the weather, of course, in, the, in, in there was like 30 miles. bit different from Cuba then. Yeah, I, I had a... Uh, Temperature difference, uh, we were uh, in November 88, uh, we were in Cuba, early November. And in December, we arrived in Murmansk. Cuba had 35 and Murmansk had 39 uh, degrees Celsius. One had plus, the other had minus. So wow. <laughs> I, uh, I think the coldest uh, thing was that the Russian uh, ships. Uh, go into the narrow places, and there are lots of narrow uh, fjords in uh, in uh, Kola Peninsula. Uh, going through these narrow places, you had to stand where where the flag post is. You had to stand there and look whether something comes which uh, you can't see from the bridge, like a security. Uh, and if the weather is minus thirty. If the ship is doing 12 knots and because of the Gulf Stream, the water is not frozen. That means that it uh, evaporates in the air and froze[s] in the air. So you have kind of a cold nails uh, hitting you. Uh, so the temperature feels like minus 50. Then, but that is really something which is very, very cold. I mean, the coldest I've ever been in my life. And you had to stand there three, four minutes, and then somebody will come and uh, 
exchange you and then you can go back and warm up and in 15 minutes you have to go back there. Uh, and you don't see anything anyway. It's dark and uh, cold and you cannot open your eyes, but, but you have to stay there because that's the manual. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine uh, <laughs> that cold, but thank, that was a great, great description. Um, wh- when did your, your service in the, in the Soviet military end? Uh, 30 December 88. When you returned home, had Estonia changed or did you notice that it had changed? Oh, yeah, you cannot believe it. Uh, uh, because uh, in Estonia, the real change took place uh, in summer 88, where the Singing Field Festival took place, and that is called Singing Revolution. After that, the blue, black, and white was officially announced. Estonia has announced uh, its independence, announced, not became, but has announced independence from the Soviet Union uh, already 16 November 88. So all this, what uh, in the Western world is called fall of the wall, has already took place in Estonia in summer 88. Uh, so as I left, it was uh, Soviet Union poor, communist to the all ends. And during these three years, I had very few contacts with the world. Uh, because of being on the seas, the uh, mail came only every three or four months. My parents didn't know where I am, they just knew that I'm on the ship, but where our address was Moscow 700. <laughs> so, kind of a tricky thing. And uh, so, I was shocked, literally. And they kept me until really. 30 of December. If you remember, I went early October, I think, very early days of October. So we actually served three years and almost three months, which was the maximum you ever can serve in the Soviet uh, conscription, from the first call to the last call. When, when you return to Estonia, did you? I'm presuming you straight away got involved in the independence movement. Uh, well, actually, I uh, hated military that time, so I went to to the university and studied history. But of course, 1990, I joined the paramilitary that time underground movement of Defense League, which in Estonia is the National Guard still existing and uh, uh, very popular. Uh, Yes, I, I joined the uh, anti, uh, anti-Soviet movement in uh, 1990. But um, one year, 89 to 90, I just was happy to be back home as a young man. So I actually spent my 20th birthday on, in Cuba. <laughs> so, or, or way to Cuba, actually. Not in Cuba, but way to Cuba. On the way to Cuba. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, not fun. But one thing I want to say is, and there's lots of stories of uh, negative stories about the Soviet uh, service. On the ship, actually, if you were working hard, and if you were not sleeping in the 
in your duty, then there was no uh, kind of uh, pushing or pulling for the young people. Uh, because everybody was relying on the other one. Every person had its task. And no difference if you were officer or conscript. If you slept on duty, you were bullied. Commander bullied the lieutenant, young lieutenant the same way uh, as uh, we bullied somebody who, did, who didn't do the job properly. But there was no kind of a fights or something like that, even between the nations, because on the ship, 100 people with officers together, it, you rely on each other. On the stormy weather, there's no question, uh, you have to rely on everybody. Uh, and th therefore, I didn't see that. And we were very well fed. We had five times a day uh, food, very clean, very professionally cooked and very very good and that is again a reason if, if the cook didn't cook well so then the, the crew went to him and asked what, what's happened and then when he cooked well again <laughs> yeah 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 no i get i guess it's yeah because you are you know you've got a common enemy in terms of the weather yeah, when you're on a, yeah. When you're weather on a and sea and everything, and, and then you had to just that, that's just how it was. Can I ask you a few bits around, about independence? Because I'm in, I'm interested to hear your experience of of that that period. Can you remember when you heard about the coup in Moscow? What was your reaction to that? Okay, well, I I was a student. Uh, I was a member of Defense League. Uh, but that was we, we didn't have that many trainings that time. We just were officially members, but not that many. That, and I was in uh, in my university, uh, yeah, practicum in uh, in Tartu. Uh, but uh, the morning which happened, uh, I collected uh, thirty students. We armed ourselves with Molotov cocktails. Uh, hijacked a bus from the street, asked him to go to Tallinn, uh, and then uh, we were on the barricades by the radio station, or central radio uh, and television station. Uh, on the barricades during the whole putsch. So I was, uh, and as the Russians arrived uh, from Skov on the uh, infantry fighting vehicles passing us by a couple of meters. I was on the barricades together with my student friends. Estonia was lucky in terms of there wasn't any bloodshed. Yeah, it was close. I mean, in Lithuania and Latvia it was. In Estonia it wasn't just because uh, the local uh, military commander, Russian military commander, was a sensible person. And that is not about, he got an order, but he didn't, uh, he didn't follow the order. And, and in Lithuania, it was vice versa. There was an, an idiot uh, division commander, and therefore there were people killed. In Estonia, there wasn't, and there were no people killed. But it was close. I mean, they were like uh, driving by 30 meters 
dress that if uh, somebody would have thrown a Molotov cocktail or something would have happened, that would have been a bloodbath. But it didn't. But it was very close, very close. Because Estonia declared full independence during the, the coup, didn't it? Yes, 20 August uh, 11.50-something p.m. And you can remember the, the moment you heard? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. We were, uh, we were all listening to radio at that time, everybody. We were on the barricades, the Russians were there, but then the announcement came that the coup d'etat fall apart uh, in Moscow and then the Russians left. <laughs> uh, and then we were independent and, and penniless. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, how does a country suddenly switch from being part of the Soviet Union to being independent? I mean, you know, because you, the currency is still ruble, police, taxes and all that sort of thing. How, how does that? It took her, so, but uh, in, in eight months' time, or I mean, actually in a year' time, we had her election in in a year less than a year we had their currency changed against every imf advice or every mature european democracy advice our government decided to have uh, own currency which uh, really nobody uh, thought we would manage every estonian started with uh, 1,500 rubles were exchanged to 150 kronas, uh, so 10 euros. Every, every Estonian, every Estonian started with 10 euros. <laughs> so can, could people only exchange 1,500 rubles? Was that the limit that they could change? Yes, yes. So the whole country started with zero. Wow. I hadn't realized that. So what happened to the rest of their rubles? Did what what happened to those? They were sold to Chechens. They came out uh, 10 years later, but the government did uh, sell them to Chechen Republic, Chobardudayev. Who was uh, who was actually a uh, military commander in Estonia during the the Johar Dudayev was their Air Force base commander in, uh, in one of the cities uh, and he was uh, very uh, nationalistic already uh, and very supportive to Estonian independence uh, at that time. And so they sold the rubles to, uh, to the Chechen Republic before the Chechen war. And uh, yes, and then uh, of course uh, the privatization took part very quickly. The government was, the prime minister was 32, the minister of foreign affairs was 27, uh, and these young boys, they just were mad enough to do very quick decisions to, to privatize uh, the whole economy to 95%. Uh, everybody got back their family's uh, uh, property from 1940. Yeah. If there was somebody to to get that, and and uh, every Estonian got uh, uh, vouchers to for the years you lived in Soviet Union, so you could privatize your flat, your house, your property. So I think these very quick changes 
of the economy made it happen that we were very successful very quickly. The Soviet army remained in Estonia till 94. Did they just stay in their barracks? Yeah, well, that was because I, I then joined the Estonian armed forces. Uh, I was the first in the first officer's course, which lasted one and a half months, from December 91 to uh, January 92. Then I, I was the first of two company commanders, and six months later I was uh, XO of the battalion of 500 conscripts with their one and a half months uh, army education. And uh, my naval education didn't help that much <laughs> uh, at that time. And then uh, 1992 in, in, uh, in spring, we were taking over the Russian bases uh, where the Russian colonels were still in. So a young second lieutenant, me, and the colonel from the other side, we were arguing about how to take over the bases. I mean, they, it was fun. Lots of fun. <laughs> so, so you were having to negotiate as a yeah. second lieutenant with yeah. a Soviet colonel yeah. as to what they were going to leave behind, and, and, and they didn't leave anything. They just leave, they just left empty, empty rooms. They even took their toilets with them, uh, or or sold them or whatever. So there was a disaster which we took over. There was nothing to you be used. So we were living. I was living in my in my office uh, on the table. I had a mattress under the table, so in the daytime I used it as an office uh, uh, table, and in the nighttime I slept on my on my table. Uh, so uh, there were lots of mad things we did that uh, first years. But right now, one of my conscripts is our chief of staff, so it's it's okay. We, we did well. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, it, it's an incredible, right? I, because, you know, you you were chief of defence 2011 to 2018. Yeah. So, you know, that's quite a quick progression through <laughs> through the ranks. Really. Yeah, but, uh, but if your army has... Well, I was the only serving uh, military as I was chief of defence. The longest serving military because I was from the first day of the... Of the uh, of the Estonian re-establishing the Estonian army, maybe Air Force came later. You said there was a significant Russian population in Estonia. Did a lot of them leave to go to the Soviet Union, or did they take Estonian citizenship? Well, uh, no, not that many left. Their armed forces left, but but the rest of people left. Uh, stayed in Estonia, and if you could choose uh, whether you go to Russia or, or be in European country, you would uh, rather stay in European country. That's easy to decide. Uh, they uh, one third of them uh, took Estonian citizenship. One of the one third of them have Russian citizenship, and one third of them are stateless. They don't have citizenship. They have so-called grey passports. Uh, they are. They have permission, uh, permit to live in Estonia, but they don't have uh, possibility to vote on the parliamentary election. Every every other right they have, but they are not able to vote on the parliamentary election. They can uh, vote on the local election and, and so on, but not in the parliamentary election. 
but but they are there. But they speak. They 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 are kind of assimilated or integrated. So there's no problem. Did you know your experience in the Soviet military help you with your newer military career in any way? No. <laughs> Did it not give you any any insights into the the Soviet or Russian mentality? Oh, of course, but of course, uh, of course, that is something, and and, uh, and of course, the knowledge of the language and all this. I always people ask whether I speak Russian. They say I had an intens- intensive practice, uh, three years and three months on the ship uh, on Krima. Yeah, yeah. I mean uh, the mentality, but I knew it before and uh, already from my life. Uh, and of course, to understand the Russian mentality, uh, yeah, that is. And I've lived with them long enough, and not only Russians, but to, from the all different Soviet republics. Yes, but but uh, really from the tactics and military and that side, not at all. One thing which uh, which people don't imagine is that the 18 years old boy is taken out of the mother's bed and sent to Vladivostok, Severomorsk, end of the world. I mean, I had friends who were serving next to Mongolia or even Mongolia. I had friends who were serving in the middle of Russia, not speaking a language at all. Uh, and of course, you mentioned that the bullying or the, the, the beating-ups were normal that time in the army, army units. Uh, and you had to spend there two years. That is, uh, people mature during this time. They came back all men. All. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information